Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk uh, to the people who create these games. Now, this week, you will notice that my voice does not sound probably as nice as it usually does. That is because uh, I had originally planned to hang up the gone fishing sign uh, because I'm actually on vacation this week and I am back in the United States visiting family. Uh, and by the time you hear this, I will actually be on my way back to Australia if I'm not already in Australia. But I didn't want to take a break from the show. And I discovered a way to record that sounded okay. And while I may not be sounding as good as I usually am, I have to say that my guest sounds amazing. And that's all that matters because he is a friend of mine from way, way back from one of the first days that I arrived in the country of Australia. And I walked into my first games workshop store uh, looking for friends. I found one behind the counter. Uh, my good buddy, Alistair. Now, you would know this man from his podcast, Two Guys in a Dice Cup. You would also know him from all sorts of uh, bolt-action podcasts and uh, website and Facebook posts and podcasts. Uh, he is a man who knows his stuff. Al was recently the team captain for Scotland for the WTC. And my God, this man knows his bolt action. And I am really excited to have him on today because we are going to have a good time. And we are going to talk about the army that he took to the WTC and an army that I'm currently working on. And a little some something we've been talking about behind the scenes for quite a while are ideas around building a proper Soviet army. So I guess the big question today is, Al, do you believe that the Soviet Union is possibly the best or the most powerful army in bolt action. Brad, thank you for the introduction. That's all true. We have known each other for a hell of a long time. Mm -hmm. And in answer to that question, answered on the Snafu podcast, the Soviet Union is one of the two best armies, the two best nations that you can you can put together for bolt action. Uh, the other army being the Britain and the Commonwealth. So yeah, Soviet Union are top drawer action, and we're going to talk a lot about them um, in this podcast. We are, brother. We are. Now, Al, as you said, we have been friends for a very long time. In fact, you brought me into my very ever first game club. Uh, you were part of the group that decided to bring me into the, the Golden D6 way back in the day for uh, Warhammer 40,000. And it sounds, uh, like such a, it sounds like such a clandestine you know, Secret Squirrel Club, but it was. Yeah, it I was really about was. to say, it really was. I still have <laughs> the golden D6 next to my uh, podcasting computer in Melbourne, uh, yeah. stuck there with a little bit of blue tack to remind me of my roots. Uh, but I think the greatest part of that club, besides the camaraderie, which was fantastic, but I think, I mean, we were a very successful club back in the day, but I think we were successful because we got together 
and we talked about the game. We did a, we talked shop, we crunched, we looked at the units, we looked at the efficiencies, we looked at tactics, we talked fluff, we built themed armies, but we also got together and practiced. And I've yeah. recently been asked by a couple of people, what is a better way or how do I get better at these games? Because I keep playing and I'm, I'm sort of middle of the pack. And you being someone who's at the cutting edge of competitive play at the moment, I thought I would ask you this question because I know that when I was being a very competitive player, the best way for me to be prepared was to get those reps in. And I think when we played with the Golden D6, we would set up to play against one another. We would start to play. And then sometimes, you know, we would stop and re-rack and start again just to get our deployments right. But sometimes we'd let it run all the way through, even if we deployed badly, because then you had to learn how to fight your way out of it. But it was also at the end of those games, and we had weekly games, that we would have those conversations about, well, what did you think I did right? And what did you think I did wrong? That was the key. And I remember uh, Big Dave, one of one of the other members, his question at the start of a game to me was always, Al, what are your hopes and dreams for this game? It yeah, was said in a go. funny way, but he was checking, <laughs> what's, what's your plan? Yeah. What's your plan? You've got what, what is going to happen? And then the debrief at the end, as you discuss the end game tactics of what happened in turn one, how did that set yourself up for turn two, three, four? Were there any crunch moments where the plan got away from you and you had to adapt? There's something I recently said on an episode of the Two Guys One Dice Cup podcast that I do for Blood Bowl is that there are so many games of Blood Bowl that are put down to, you know, when you ask the question, oh, did you lose? Oh, what happened? Oh, man, the dice, the dice screwed me. The dice rolls were not there. Yep. No, that's when you've got to stop. Never instantly dismiss a game to say, oh, the dice got away from me or, you know, my leadership checks were poor. You know, I had. I had these dice rolls that I needed to make and never came off. Analyze what those dice rolls were, actually. It's like, so you had a lot of leadership checks to take, okay? So your opponent put a lot of pins on your units, forcing you to take leadership checks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it wasn't the dice that did you over. Your opponent made you roll lots of dice. So that was a tactical, uh, that was a tactical thing by your opponent that worked. Mm -hmm. Um so your shooting wasn't very good, so you needed lots of sixes or, you know, sixes and then sixes. Mm -hmm. Why was that? You know, were you moving your units too much? Were you in cover? Were you um, shooting a long range too often when you should have been running to get closer? Was your opponent going down? Tactical things made your dice rolls harder than they could have been. Mm -hmm. so, so to dismiss a game to say, oh, the dice screwed me, it's like, well, did it? Um, did it really? You know, if it was down yeah. to you know, one leadership check on a veteran unit that had never tested the entire game. Okay, maybe maybe it was a bit unlucky, or if it was a you yeah. know a foobar that you know <laughs> if your officer foobarred and then turned around and shot your artillery observer before he could fire, it's like okay, that's a bit extreme. Extreme, sorry. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another thing that it's that thing to stop players dismissing losses down to dice and actually think. Think about what it was that you know you had to roll. If exactly. you're disappointed that if you're disappointed that you didn't roll, you know, super sixes all all game, it's like, well, 
that's that's right. Or yeah, you love to you love to hear those players where you know they had three multi launchers in their army and they lost, and they say, "Oh, I didn't roll any sixes." It's like, well, you were relying yeah. on rolling sixes, so yeah, your your tactical choices were poor. And so that's as you were talking about with our gaming group at that time. It was that analysis of the game. It didn't matter really what your army list was, uh, what your nation or team or race or whatever game mm-hmm. we were playing. It was the analysis of how how did it do, and it's not just it was it was always a two way street for mm-hmm. for the feedback. You had to tell your opponent what they were doing, and they had to tell you back, and you had to suck it up like ah, yeah. cops pretty harsh feedback because what I have to what I've said in other podcasts was. I tried so hard to be good at 40k through mm-hmm. the different editions that we played competitively. So, so hard. But there was just some invisible glass ceiling that I couldn't quite punch through to, you know, to get tournament wins. I could I could land myself on the podium. And, you know, I, I would always get a good mm-hmm. top 10 finish. But, you know, to, to lift a first place prize, I never did it. Never did it. Well, you were also one of the best painters I ever saw. So you took home all the gold in other categories. I, but, yeah, I can, I have, I can understand. Yeah. Yeah, but Brad, remember as well, you're you're an awesome sportsman. How many sports awards have you accumulated in those years? One or two. One yeah, or two. I, I, one or and two. you can play. And you yeah. can play. And or you could play. But well, but the thing to yeah, well, the thing to draw back to bolt action for, I guess the, the purpose of this podcast is that to get better and to be good it is repetition and analysis mm-hmm. of your of your of your gameplay. Once you analyze your gameplay, you'll start to adjust army lists mm-hmm. and unit numbers, etc. And you know, I'll, there's a lot of competitive chat about what a meta list looks like and what the build is and the units that work. And I'm sure we'll talk about a few of them. Oh yeah, as we talk about the Soviets. But there is a, a very common theme amongst a lot of the competitive players or the, the you know just good players in general is that you would always take a player who's practiced their list more than a mm-hmm. good player that's just written a, a, a um what would be the term a meta list or a net list and and that's true exactly and that's I'd... i i fully fully agree with that i totally agree with that and something i want to circle back to is you were talking about creating those opportunities uh, for people to roll dice and to make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And in bolt action, there's a perfect mechanic for that. I'm a firm believer in the death by a thousand paper cuts philosophy of pitting everything I can because it creates the opportunity for someone to fail the die roll. And bolt action happens. And it's usually at the moment when they need it. And you know, I know it's probably not the most efficient tactic at times to count on my opponents to fluff a roll but the number of times that they have and i've been able to capitalize yeah, on that it's, there's yeah there's there's that mechanic of the pinning to make the leadership checks happen but there's a lot more other subtleties to it mm. uh, the dice bag the, or, the order dice bag draw you know you have got to manage what's happening in there and understand and and not be afraid to ask if your opponent's got the dice bag. Ask to see how many dice are left in there. Mm-hmm. Ask your opponent what units he's got left to activate. Mm-hmm. Ask these questions uh, so that they're all on the table. Um, yeah. You know, so that you know the the odds of 
you know, what's going to come out next or what can happen next. I know there's also this other element where people have got to... I like, sorry, whenever I talk about players, I always sort of talk about, like, um, you know, the top tier of player, the the middle tier, and, and the, the movement of players between mm. between those tiers, you know, how they're rising up the ranks, so to speak. And one thing that players have to understand is that where where is the battle where's the conflict happening on the table on the tabletop itself mm -hmm. you know so you, you watch and i'm gonna hopefully not use another poor term but a junior player a player mm -hmm. that's less experienced you know if i shoot my sniper at your squad well you know at, at like a team or something and put a pin on it sometimes you'll find that player will then shoot your sniper back with something else it's mm -hmm. like well He's not a threat anymore he's just activated and that's the same with any unit if it's activated mm -hmm. it's not a threat right now you can come back to that later look at the battlefield and yeah. work out where can you have an effect mm -hmm. where's the next threat coming from can you counter it um and it's those little subtleties that you know some of your listeners will think i of course why wouldn't you do that but there are players out there that are still mm -hmm. um when when you put the the red flag to the bull and they just charge, mm -hmm. or they want to kill something quick, so there's a lot to it, man. We've got that's some deep tactical chat already. Man, ah, man, you know I love it. But look, I like to think that I'm a decent player of bolt action. I played a lot of it. I played it at the competitive edge. I play a lot of it narratively these days. But I like to think that no matter what game I'm playing, I, I'm giving someone a good game. And mm -hmm. during all of Melbourne's lockdowns, um, obviously I wasn't playing any bolt action there. But when we started playing again, the first you know five or six games that I played, I was kicking myself the entire time because I'd get halfway through a turn and be like, why did I shoot that there? That's already shot. Yeah. Why am I moving over here? What's going on there? And it was a lot of taking stock and saying, hey, hold on for a second. Let me just take a look. Let me have a think. Okay, now I know what I'm doing. And I know that we always talk about, for tournament play in particular, that it's important that you're not slow playing your opponent. But if you need to take a second to take, take a breath and look at the game state and understand what's happening on the tabletop in front of you, for me, that's important. But it's also important that you know what your units do and that you've had the reps in, in advance so that you know what they're doing. So you're not spending your time trying to figure out, ooh, what do I do here? Does that work here? You have a clear knowledge of what's going on on the tabletop before that happens. And that that repetition and practice comes in, and uh, if you're talking at a tournament, be it competitive or fun or whatever, round three of day one when you're tired, if you've had a few beers or mm -hmm. there's been lunch and you're tired and you but you still want to win, you have to maybe subconsciously know what your army does anyway and not have to think. It's even more important in round six on a two-day tournament. Oh yeah, like a, a, a proper, a proper two-day tournament. Not a. I hate. I hate so many two-day tournaments. To do five games. Point. Oh, just annoys me. Annoys me greatly. Um, <laughs> if I'm going, if I'm going for two days, I want six games. I want the real deal. We did um, the Easter Front earlier this year, and by the end of turn six, because it was a six-turn event. Uh, sorry, six-round event. And at the end of it, it's, man, people were looking haunted. It was <laughs> no one was used yeah. to playing that long. It was brutal. It was awesome. It should be, should be six games, man. Balls deep. Yeah. Play ball action. 
I went. Um, I know we we messaged on Facebook a little bit. Um, I went to a seven game bolt action event in two days, and it was brilliant. Oh, oh mate, I would die. I am. I do not have that in me at the moment. No mate. way, man. It was so good. It was so good. It was four four games at seven hundred and fifty points, and three games at twelve fifty. Uh, all you had to do was have the same nation, um, mm-hmm. but they could be different lists. Like they had to be kind of yeah. close. The TOs checked the lists, and you know, after after round seven, like there, there was about half the field were like, "Yeah, let's go again. Let's do round eight. Come on, come on, come on." Let's, you know, it ran really smoothly. What was it? it was like it was two two hours for the twelve fifty points, and an hour and a an hour and a half for seven hundred and fifty points, and we were just hammering at home. Oh wow, it yeah. was so good. I loved it. Mate, that, I loved it. And, oh, hour and a half for any size game of bolt action. As a TO who's run many, many events, two hours and people start to get a little like, oh, I can't finish my game, can't finish my game. But I suppose if it's a small enough game, did were the boards smaller? Because sometimes that's a big factor as well. Nope. Oh. Nope. It was full the fully dense terrain, six foot by four foot tables. Um, but players knew that. These are the time limits, and yeah. people played fast. Uh, really? One of my twelve, one of my twelve fifty point games. Um, I never got timed out on a single game. They all went to their natural end, mm-hmm. but there was a twelve fifty point game where we rolled for a turn seven, and we were literally throwing the models for, you know, just mm-hmm. chucking them, chucking them forward. <laughs> Thank God yeah. some of them were plastic, um, but that was for both myself and my opponent. That was a. That was a game of double envelopment. It was like we were just, yeah. you know, okay, twelve inches run, yeah, get into deployment zones. Yep. And then when we totted up the points, it was sixteen points plays fifteen, and it was a flat draw, and we pissed ourselves laughing. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. There you go, yeah. and that's good bolt action. It well, was. Al, I'm sure we can talk about this till the cows come home, but let's see if we can intersperse some of this tactical talk while we are actually talking armies of Soviet Union. Yes. Now, you are an experienced Soviet player. I'm an experienced Soviet player, although I'll be honest, I haven't played a ton of Soviets recently. That said, I am currently painting a new Soviet army, so I'm looking forward to getting more games in. But I have played tons over the years. I've had three Soviet armies, and uh, I'm looking forward to digging in and talking shop. For my Soviet background, um, the Soviets were my very first bolt action army in version one back in. 2013 2014 mm-hmm. whenever this game started and mm-hmm. that collection grew and grew and grew and grew there was five t-34s there was cavalry there was artillery there was just buckets of infantry of every different flavor and uh, it was last year i decided to sell all of them just get rid of them all the, mm-hmm. the entire collection because i found that i was just using like a core core yep. group of them and because they were the first army that ever painted you know there's a bit of wear and tear my painting wasn't that good and i just thought mm-hmm. you know what i need to get rid of all of you out of my house and then the next army i started building was a new soviet army yeah. <laughs> a much better soviet army oh yeah oh but that that's the great thing i had the vision then yeah couldn't couldn't deliver it the vision was still there skills are better delivered it um yeah. and I'm, I'm really excited by the soviet army still excites me you know mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't do the maths but you know 
eight years later. Is it yeah, eight exactly. years? Nine years? A Something long time. Like that. A long yeah. time. Long enough that yeah. we we stopped counting the years. Sorry, I, I saw briefly you, you know, because myself and Brad were on a um, video chat as well at the moment. I saw you lift up your Soviet book. Is it as tattered and battered as mine? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at the state of that thing. Yeah. It's- <laughs> It's uh, it's not good. It is. Uh, I pre-ordered this before it came out, and uh, it's it's seen some event play. Let's just say that way. Yeah, uh, it cool is old. Well, let's dig in because the big question here is: Is the Soviet Union one of the most powerful armies in bolt action? And I would say it is. Now, what gives it its power isn't necessarily that it has one or two key units that is better than everything else in the game. It's not that you're going to be spamming one thing at the detriment of other. What I think makes the Soviets the one of the best armies is, and we will come back to this at the end of the episode with an overall thoughts, but I think one of the great things about the Soviet Union is the variability of the units and the vehicles that you find in the book. And then all of the things that have been added to it since then just makes this army, the Swiss Army Knife, the jack-of-all-trades of bolt-action armies. I just think you can do almost anything with it. And I have an example of that once we get to building armies a little later. I'm blown away every time I'm like, yeah, I have an idea. And I try to make it work with another army book, and it doesn't always click. And then I go, I wonder, oh, oh yeah, I can do that with the Soviets. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, is that your feeling as well, Al? Very much so. But is the, the adaptability... Um, of the army itself and players that have different play styles can find a Soviet list that will work for them. You know, if it's the the list that you like lots of veterans, the Soviets can do that. If it's a big horde army, um, you know, with 20, 24 dice, Soviets can do that. If it's that mixture of, you know, just straight in the middle, nice bucket of regular infantry, yep, Soviets can do that. And they'll all They'll all be good. They'll all be good as long as your playstyle matches it. Um, exactly. And and we'll we'll touch on that more because you know some of the playstyles of the Soviet army list don't match me. Yeah. Well, I think you and I both play a very particular kind of Soviet army, and I think you and I actually play similar styles of Soviet armies at times. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll talk about that. But there are lots of people who play different styles. Let's let's dig into some of the national rules though. One of the cool things about the Soviet Union book is that the armies of the Soviet Union has a few really good national rules, but then it's followed up with a bunch of what we call sort of unofficial national rules, um, additions and changes to the list building that are built into the army list, for example, the extra anti-tank choices that are almost like unofficial national rules. And we'll get to those as well. But Al, let's start with the Great Patriotic War. Uh, can you explain what that does? Because I think this is probably one of the most slept on national rules in the game. It's outstanding. It it's why I love the Soviets. It's really, really odd that you never hear more people talk about it. So the gist of the Great Patriotic War is that whenever a Soviet infantry or artillery unit would fail its morale check, and a morale check is the check that it takes before it gets destroyed, um, either by um, getting reduced by 50%, getting hit by a flamethrower, uh, or I believe a tank charge does it as well. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong on that. But whenever a unit would fail a morale check that would then otherwise be destroyed, that unit can re-roll its check. Uh, so I mean, the same modifiers the same modifiers still apply, um, 
but it's it's still a reroll of a of a of a test to keep a unit yeah. on the board, and I, I this is phenomenal. I don't know about you, but that has saved my bacon in so many games where I've been on the verge of losing a yep. unit that's been at fifty percent casualties or that's been flamered, and I've only lost a couple of guys, but I've taken some pins, and then I failed that test and gone, oh, this is terrible, and then re-rolled it, no problem. Yeah, it's, it's happened to me. I've had, um, you know, like a six-man unit of veteran tank riders. They get hit by some small arms fire, and, you know, they, they're they unlucky enough to lose three, three miniatures. So they lose three miniatures, they take one pin, still a morale check, and they failed it. I remember they failed the first dice, the mm -hmm. first dice roll, and then I said, you know, a oh, great patriotic war to my opponent, and my opponent looked at me and wondered, what does that mm -hmm. mean? It's like, I I get to roll that. I get to roll that again, and I had to show the guy the rule book. He was, you know, not the most experienced player, but you know, he'd been around, and I thought he should, you know, you should know how cool my special rules are. So, so yeah, so the ability to reroll a failed morale check is definitely something that is. Um, you know, please don't forget it, players. Yeah. Don't forget it. Hit by a flamethrower, roll it again. Well, let's talk about the second national rule, because that's the one that everyone seems to talk about. It is the most over-discussed national rule, because it is really good, because it's a free unit. Quantity has its own quality of its own, allows a Soviet squad to get a 12-man inexperienced squad for free. Now, they also get green on that squad, and they get all the updates that you could possibly get for that squad. So you can get anti-tank grenades for free. You can get a flag for free. It really does allow you to get a lot of free gear on a big squad. I mean, how often do you see a 12-man squad that isn't free on a tabletop in bolt action? It allows you to take that, and it, it just gives you that extra order dice and an extra unit on the board. Now, I typically don't run a lot of inexperienced in bolt action. Uh, and for a while, I ran a Soviet list. And I'll be honest, I didn't take a free squad. I just didn't use that rule because I thought the, the national rule of getting to reroll morale tests was good enough. And I just didn't take it. And I know that's me being me. Um, I also didn't want to paint 12 more white models before the event that I took it to. And everything else in my army was veteran and regular. And I thought it didn't match. But having that free squad is great, right? It is. But there's always a smaller list creating. And you've said it before in previous podcasts, you're looking for synergies. You're looking for things that want to work together to mutually support each other. And I've found that when you're putting together a Soviet list and you're instantly given these 12 inexperienced guys, there are days when you look at them and think, as you did, I don't want them. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what your purpose is because to make them work, you obviously have to work into your, your strategy, your plan for whatever mission, whatever your opponent is. So, you know, sometimes people will think, do I have to buy them a truck? Oh, well then I have to pay some points to buy them a truck. Mm -hmm. All right. No. Okay. So if I'm not going to buy them a truck, do they need some more inexperienced guys to go with them? So they're like a big mm -hmm. blob of, you know, two or three units of inexperienced guys. And then working out what to do with them. It's like, so do you guys just go down and hide? Or do I run forward and just valiantly sacrifice you? It's it's not it's not as clear cut. It's cool. You've got an order dice, 100%. Free order dice in the bag for an army. Brilliant. Make sure you work them into your plan somewhere. They've got to exactly. be 
part of it. And we will, I guess we'll discuss this in the next, the next rule that comes up. Mm -hmm. And there is a wonderful uh, unit in the Soviet book that is a great accompaniment, which yes. is, of course, our friend, the Commissar. And his exactly. rule, not one step back. Now, not one step back means that commissars are political officers and do not confer a morale bonus to nearby troops. So they're not like other officers. However, if soldiers show signs of disobeying orders, the commissars will not hesitate to shoot them. And in game terms, what that means is when a friendly infantry unit fails an order test within six inches of said commissar, remove one model from the unit and re-roll the dice. So the commissar shoots a fool and then they get to re-roll the order dice. Again, you get that re-roll. And that re-roll just builds consistency. So you have the yep. consistency of the being able to re-roll your morale check so you don't just disappear. And it allows you to re-roll that order dice. Now, that's huge, especially when you are dealing with an inexperienced squad that you know may not have the greatest leadership but does have the numbers that commissars can shoot right away. And especially yep. since you didn't pay for that squad anyway, I never feel bad when a commissar shoots one of those guys. I no. will say I have felt bad when a commissar has shot one of my scouts. And while the scout squad got to move, that's a small expensive squad. And it felt bad to have one of those guys go. But yeah, that's, that's the, the double edged sword rule is that you can't, you can't just ignore the rule. So it's any Soviet unit within six inches of the commissar that fails an order check. He yeah. instantly shoots somebody. There's no option for you to decide, nah, I don't really want to do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a clever, I'm going to say a clever opponent will play on that if you've deployed your commissar right in the guts of your army. Because if you just spray pins at the army and you fail any of your order checks, as you just said, Brad, you know, scouts get shot. Uh, veteran engineers with body armor, yeah. nah, you're dead too. Um, he will just gun down yep. bros like nothing else. Best um, armor penetration is, in the game. Yeah, which is why you always arm your um, commissar with a submachine gun so he can kill a lot of dudes. <laughs> That's right. Um, yep. Now, there is, is one more national rule. There um, is. And it's one that I will, I. I keep wanting to try it, but I've never tried it. Now, Al, you were running a Soviet army yes. for longer than I did, and yes. you had more options than I've run. Yes. Have you ever run or used the rule mass batteries? No. <laughs> yeah. But but I can say I have had it used against me. Oh, uh, have you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I am. Um, so mass batteries. The Soviets excelled at using mass batteries, and the Red Army artillery barrages were seemingly truly terrifying. Therefore, we give a bonus to the Soviet artillery barrage when rolling to determine the fire-for-effect radius. So this is basically your artillery observer. When they fire, instead of just a D6 plus 6, the Soviets get to roll 2D6 and pick the highest to get the distance that the barrage comes in. So, you know doesn't take a genius to work out that the chances of them getting a bigger area is greater. Uh, as myself and Brad have, you know, quite clearly said, we've never played it ourselves. Nope. But I, I have had it played against me. It was um, at competition level. It was a guy called Benny from Denmark. It was at WTC in Poland. Uh, he had an exceptionally lethal Soviet army. 
with multi-launchers and it was all bad, 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 bad. It was the quickest game of bolt action I ever had. Um, I should say it, it lasted 46 minutes um, and my toy soldiers were packed up by the end of it in my figure case. Good nights. Nice and neatly, but um, so yeah, the the artillery observer he had, he paid the hundred points for, and he got to roll the extra dice for distance, and and I'm sure it worked. I'm sure he got something obscene. It's just another extra rule that the Soviets have that set them apart and help help players that you know that do like artillery observers. It gives them another tool in their toolbox. There's also a nice little catch with this. Once you marry it up with them, um, there's a theater selector in the Stalingrad mm -hmm. uh, campaign book that doesn't allow your army to take any artillery pieces at all. To offset that, though, it says that if you do take an artillery observer, they can fire twice as they count as the off-board artillery. Mm -hmm. You know, so for a hundred points, you get to fire fire an artillery observer twice with this rule as backup. That's pretty spicy. Yeah, forget about it. That hurts. Oh, yep. yep. I just know how many times I've been splattered by British artillery and taken all the pins. And you know, you you're praying for opponent bad dice when they when that happens, and you're praying it bounces back or it doesn't come. But mm -hmm. when they get to re-roll the distance, now of course you're not re-rolling the dice on whether or not it doesn't come or if it bounces on you. <laughs> Let me be clear. But again, with the third national rule that gives you a re-roll it's giving you more of a chance of getting what you want to happen uh which is just again builds consistency for the tools that you have in your army it's great well let's no, talk about the third national sorry fourth fifth I, i'm forgetting what national number national rule we're on here but if we move out into the more unofficial national rules we have something that is it's called extra selection, and you may take up to three anti-tank teams, a mix, any mix of anti-tank rifles, uh, implement launchers, dog teams, and tank hunter squads as one selection in a reinforced platoon. So you can take any combination of those. You could have an ATR, you could have a, a dog mine, and you could have a tank hunter team, and that takes up one selection. And what I've found, if you combine all of these rules together, is if you want to go budget um, and you really want to blow out your order dice with Soviets, if you take a commissar with one extra guy, that's 20 with his little friends next to him, um, because they're inexperienced, that's 22 points. Take three anti-tank rifles or some other variation because they're all about 30 points. We're talking 90 points. For 102 points, you are getting five order dice because you mm -hmm. have your free squad, your commissar, and three additional anti-tank assets. That is amazing. Just to have, before you even build, you have that. So when I was first playing Soviets, I used that to my advantage in that I would take ridiculously big, stupid things like SU-152s or entire squads of scouts that normally chew up a lot of points to have an offsetting the smaller dice count with the natural advantage of being able to bulk out a, a, a dice count with these five additional units for a very low cost, man, I just, I just felt that the Soviets really allowed you to, to lean into areas that normally you would be punished by order dice counts. 
Soviets don't seem to have that problem. Um, have you had similar experiences? Because I know you've played around with a lot of different builds. Yeah, look, very, very similar at the beginning. Um, I'd modeled the three anti-tank rifles just mm-hmm. to get, you know, 90 points, three dice, you know, looking for that purpose for the inexperienced free squad. They always were escorted by a commissar. So I exactly started with, with that nice bundle of um, of order dice. And, you know, looking at the anti-tank rifle, using them as a defensive tool, uh, they would be, you know, holding flanks on ambush, mm-hmm. waiting for outflankers, hovering around the, the edges of the tables for to try and catch flank shots at tanks. And again, just acting as those small teams that were hiding to run around and claim and contest objectives, uh, you know, towards the sort of mid middle to the end of game. So yeah, it's, it's a really good start. But even if we're talking yeah. about more like, I know dog mines are seen as the more competitive choice in this list because like almost like the suicide AT squads for the Japanese, they are, you do roll to hit with them, but they are more consistent to hit and damage a tank than a lot of other assets in the game, just because of the the numbers on the dice rolls. But even those are 36 points regular. Now, I know that you can bulk it out and you can add points, add handlers and add additional weaponry and all of that. But even they're still in that ballpark. So you are still you know, paying a very low point cost for five dice that you can then have the rest of the points to build your army list and gives you a little bit more flexibility and freedom, I think, if not a higher order dice count than your opponent, which is a huge advantage. And that's good for the players that like that style. Agreed. Um, if they like that style of army, that's, that's wonderful for them. And I'll, I'll go on record right now to say that big dice armies, I, I cannot make them work. I've tried. And by big dice... If we're talking at a thousand points, you know, anything more than like 16 to 18 at a thousand points, once you get beyond that, I, I, I just lose, lose the plot. I've heard you say on a recent podcast something that rings very true with me as well. For a thousand points, I think the sweet spot is around 13, 14 order dice. I think you said that 14 is what you like to go with. Um, I like to have about 14 at a thousand points or do you yep. shoot for something more than that? I think, look, uh, the Soviet army that I took to the LATC was 16 order dice. And I took that because I knew what the field was going to be like. I knew what I was going to be facing, so I, I cared accordingly. Um, but whereas in the past, though, a Soviet list for me would be 12 to 13 normally. Because mm-hmm. uh, I would I would do a similar thing to yourself that there would be a core of cheap dice, and then I would you know spend good points on other stuff, you know. So there would be a you know a big eight man veteran squad of tank riders. There would be a T thirty four eighty five like an actual proper tank that's two hundred thirty five points regular. Uh, there would be a eight man veteran oh god guard squad whatever they are. They would have a mixture of submachine guns, a couple of Panzerfausts. They would be in a truck with an MMG. And then in that truck would be a um, first lieutenant. So I haven't just paid a tax. Mm-hmm. I want a good lieutenant. And then the other spot in that truck would be filled up with um, a flamethrower team, a good one. So 
you know, it, it's it's that sort of. Oh, one of my friends described it to me. A Soviet army list builds always come in three elements. There's a hammer, anvil, and shield element to them, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I always find entertaining. But when I looked at my list, it's like, oh damn, you're right. Yeah, I've done it again. <laughs> I've done exactly the same thing again. There's there's that school of thought for the the big dice armies of like twenty and twenty two order dice. I tried that, and I just yeah, no, couldn't work. Didn't work. Yeah. I'm not that guy. I, because I run a lot of regular armies in particular, I know my scout army was more veteran-focused, and so that was the exception to my regular rule for a long, long time. I tend to have a certain number of order dice, and by running regular, the points sort of rein it in. So I don't tend mm -hmm. to run more than 14, maybe 13 at a time. But I also am running more than 10 because I like having more than those veteran armies filled with squads that I need to be able to outmaneuver. I need to be able to have a little bit more flexibility. But one of the cool things with the Soviet list, and I think makes it particularly powerful, was as I was going through some of the unofficial army rules, I mean, you mentioned a bunch of the units just then that yeah. have different rules than all the other armies in the game. And one of the cool things about bolt action is the consistency across armies. So you know that a rifleman is typically a rifleman is typically a rifleman, no matter what army you're running it in. The Soviets have tons of little tweaks to their units that makes them unique. You can upgrade the flamethrower team uh, if it's the independent team so that snipers can't pick them out. You can run tank riders so they can ride on your tanks. Um, I know they added the Stug Riders later um, for the German list in one of the theater selector books, but they're the only squad in the game that can zip up on a tank and zip in, jump out. And that's particularly strong in tank wars because it means you don't have to buy a transport. I mean, we have the scout unit that allows you to forward deploy, which is what I've been talking about this whole time. We have the body armor on the tank riders and on the assault engineers. And that's not even all the mm -hmm. rules I'm thinking of off the top of my head. We have the variability of the ZIS-3, for example, to be able to fire its gun both as an AT gun and as a howitzer. The A-19 gun does the same thing, except less accurately. There's just tons. There's even vehicles that have that variability to use as both an AT gun and a howitzer. There's just so many little additions to the Soviet list that really does allow you to do things that other armies just can't do. Al, I know that every Soviet army in the universe, it seems, has a ZIS-3. And we see a lot of these units a lot of the times. For example, the dog mines. No other army has that. We see them all the time. Are any of the units that I've mentioned, do you think, I know that we see them a lot because they are different and they are unique and people like to capitalize on that. Is there anything in there that you think is underrated though? I think if you're talking about underrated, you have to wander through to the vehicle section. And there's a bit of an obsession with Lend-Lease. Everybody seems to forget that the Soviet tanks are pretty good, but everybody decides, you know, oh, no, I want a Lend-Lease tank. I want, you know. You uh, want one Lend-Lease tank in particular. You're talking about the M3 Stewart. Exactly. Um, everybody loves to talk about the Stewart and 
you know, and, and I hate the term. And my friend Bo, the Danish captain who I've done a few videos with, he first said it ages ago, the DACA Stewart. I hate that term. It drives me <laughs> mad. Just it's so it's so orky Warhammer 40,000. It just yeah. drives me nuts. So I mean, look, this um, book yeah, is the, written by the orc war boss himself, Andy uh, Chambers. Exactly. But, yeah, but you know, I I don't want to talk about the Stuart because it's so boring to mm -hmm. to bring it up because we all know it's an efficient tank, 130 points mm -hmm. with the LMGs, or you give it Reiki, blah blah blah, or give it the pintle bound, and then you can shoot all these shots. Wonderful. But have a wander over and have a look at the T28. Right, 155 points regular, turret mounted light howitzer, coax MMG. Uh, then it's got two individual turret mounted MMGs covering the front left and front right, and then there's a pintle MMG, and then it's got some upgrades that you can buy. It's 155 points, and I just think it's you know just got more going on for it. And you're waving because yeah. I can see you on the video. What do you want to say? Yeah, they've FAQ'd it. So they FAQ'd it because if you look in an actual T28, and as someone who owns two of them, uh, there is a bow-mounted rear turret MMG that is not actually in that entry. So what they've actually done is they've, they've not changed the point value for the vehicle. They've put that gun in where it belongs, and they've removed the pintle. But then right. you pay additional points. You can then pay 15 additional points to put another machine gun on it as a pintle. <laughs> Because you didn't have enough. Yeah. The, you, the fins, by the way, they did not fix. And I run my fin army with two of uh, unreliable T28s. And let me tell you, they are brilliant on the bolt-action tabletop. They are, however, as large as a barn. And the every let everyone can see them on the tabletop. And they get hit with everything. So I yeah. almost feel like that helps to balance it. Because one of mine almost got pinned out with eight pins in the last game I played. And uh, thankfully, I rallied to get rid of most of it. But it was just constantly getting smashed by everything with an AT value. Because they didn't want that thing shooting with, you yeah. know, unsurprisingly. So I think, you know, for those that actually want to run a Soviet army without Lend-Lease, the T-28... That's a good. Mm -hmm. That's a good view. There are a few little comedy, comedy units. Uh, you know, this depends on what choices and what army list you're going for. But uh, the Tachanka <laughs> comedies, right? <laughs> and this is this is where people this is where people have to take a leap of faith. Um, it's it's a technically a self-propelled artillery piece. Um, but at least that's yeah. you know it's on, it's on page fifty of the army's off book. Uh, but it's basically a little horse and cart with a medium machine gun strapped to the back, and it shoots backwards. Yes. But, but it's twenty points regular. Yep. And it's got a medium machine gun, and it's mm -hmm. on a it's a three plus soft skin vehicle. So, if you're not bothered about taking a tank or filling that slot with something armored, if you've gone for an infantry horde, or if it plays to your style. It's it's a nice cheap medium machine gun for twenty points. That's you know compared mm -hmm. to the medium machine gun team, it's a thirty point saving. Um, you just face it backwards and then shoot, put it on ambush. Right. Uh, 
what what does it matter? It's twenty points. You know, that's two men with a rifle <laughs> or five shots. So you know it. It looks silly. It sounds silly, yeah. and it is silly. But it's a twenty. It's twenty points for five shots. Yeah, they were often uh, brightly painted too, like fire engine red uh, with ornate. Oh yeah, if you look mm. up pictures of these things, they're wild. I want to bring man. up something that you're going to throw a brick at me for saying, and I know I get abused for this all the time because I don't hate the idea of a medium machine gun, often because I try not to spend the officer tax to get a second platoon, and I'll use those points for a machine gun instead, and that gives me what I look at as another squad of dudes uh, because it's you know five shots, at range, it's basically the same as five regular riflemen in my mind. Yes, it, it can be taken off by one sniper hit. Yes, it's fewer dudes. But if you are going to look at a medium machine gun, obviously people love to talk about the Germans with Hitler's buzzsaw, getting that extra dice, and that's what makes it better. I'd like to point out that the medium and heavy machine gun in this list can have a gun shield, which mm -hmm. if you are using it, and I use a medium machine gun as I throw it next to, if it's one of those missions where there is an objective in my table quarter, I'll often put it next to an artillery piece right near my objective, sometimes with that 12-man squad. And it allows me to throw out pins at a distance. It's fine. And having a gun shield for five additional points, that adds to its survivability. Even if you're running it as inexperienced, um, I know people go, why would you ever run a machine gun team as inexperienced? Well, uh, if you have the points, it's there, it's cheap. Throughout, you know, you're throwing out the dice, you're rolling five dice, all you gotta do is hit once, and you're giving it a pin. And that's what I look at it for, a dependable pin. Look, it's not a great choice, but everyone talks about Germans as the go-to for, you know, medium machine guns, if you're gonna take a medium machine gun. I think the Soviets... Well, you might want to talk about it depending on how defensive and your what your army's doing. Just had to say it. Al, you're looking at me skeptically. Yeah. Oh, look. Meaning machine guns have been covered a lot in a lot of different chats and everyone mm -hmm. knows their knows their thoughts about it. But I yeah. I played a nice friendly game a couple of days ago in real time with my Germans and it was twelve fifty points. And it was, I had 11 order dice, I had a Tiger 1. It was lovely to put the Tiger on the table. And I, I took two medium machine gun teams. And I knew what I wanted to do with them. They were there to point at objectives and just fire. Just mm -hmm. spray shots at these objectives to keep people away from them. And that's what they did. And, you know, remembering that if a, it's a fixed team, you can declare an advance order rotate 90 degrees, fire in a different direction at a minus one, you can do that. It gives it a little bit of flexibility. And, oh, look, you know, I'm sure people are just waiting for it to say it, but at the top end of competitive play, you don't see them. No, you don't. They're they're not an efficient choice. They have, they're, they're good fun pieces for friendly, you know, narrative style play. You know, it, and, and it can't always be about competitive play. It can't always be about, you know, must win, be be your best. You know, there's different styles of tournaments. 
in 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 all countries that I've encountered, you know, even in Scotland, people people might not believe that, but even in Scotland, we play fun events. I might talk about one recently that that I did attend. Um, so look, it's the gun. The gun shield's an extra option. Okay, the sniper ignores it. Whoop de doo, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you can get, as you said, if you've got a regular a regular medium machine gun from the Soviets with a gun shield in a building. Need sixes to kill that bad boy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's some good action. And remembering as well, if you're in a building, you're not just limited to the 90 degree fire arc. You point it out the window and you've got the full vision of that window. So all of a sudden, being in a building with a gun shield and the extra protection a full building gives you for 55 points, all right, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let me try and redeem myself here by talking about something that is perhaps a little bit more efficient. Um, now, I did mention earlier that I've occasionally had a thought about, oh, yeah, that are, I'd like to try this style of army with this particular army list, and it doesn't always work. I was on my flight over to the United States. I was very sleep deprived because my initial flight was at 3 a.m. or I had to get up at 3 a.m. to get a 6 a.m. flight to the U.S., and I think I was on our... 15 of my flight to Boston and was almost hallucinating when I had the thought. Um, many years ago, I took a very different, weird British list to CanCon and did, and did quite well with it. And I sold it on to our good friend uh, Viv over at Knights of Dice. And I was regretting that because I really enjoyed having the army that had a bunch of Indian pattern carriers, which are the universal carriers, but wheeled. And I really enjoyed having an M3 Lee. And it occurred to me on the plane that I could run almost that entire army using the Soviets, and it would probably be better. Now, I wouldn't be able to take the India pattern carriers, but if I take the universal carriers, same sort of idea. And because I ran that army in first edition, you couldn't actually have guns fire unless you had people in it. So I had to crew those with five-man squads for a good chunk of the tournament, and that made that army not so great. Now in version two, that just feels a lot better. And something that I don't think I've heard anyone talk about, the Soviet version of the Bren carrier can take a heavy machine gun in its pintle mount which is less shots than an LMG, but that's armor penetration. And I know that you have taken a universal carrier with an anti-tank rifle sticking out of the front. So if you took that, I mean, it's the same sort of idea, except perhaps with a few more shots. And man, that just, that sounds fun. And Naval units used them. In fact, I looked it up on YouTube, and there's a wonderful video of Soviet troops driving universal carriers around with their version, um, the DK, whatever heavy machine gun in the pink firing. And wow, that looks wicked. That gun was spitting out a, a, a tongue of flame out of the front of it that was brutal to behold. And to be able to put one of those on the tabletop... I think that's great. I mean, obviously, we know that the universal carrier is wonderful. And to be able to take it in a Soviet list is great. But to go back to where I was going originally, um, actually, do you want to talk about the universal carrier before I move on? 
because it is such a versatile, cheap, armored carrier. And because it has the possibility of two machine guns, it is a great pin sprinkler because you can split fire between that and hit two different units. And that was the key to my success when I was playing the British. It is. It's, the Soviets got it lend-lease, and it can replace the T-20 Komsomolite, um, which is effectively the same thing that the Soviets had, except that you can buy upgrades for the Bren carrier or universal carrier um, to give it the Pintel LMG. You can also stick the anti-tank rifle in the hull as well for another upgrade. So it's it's not... It's not giving the Soviets something that they didn't already have access to, just something that's got a few little tweaks, a few little extra options. Um, yeah. You know, again, to, to fire that pintle, you need to have somebody in it. Uh, and obviously, you know, with a with a universal carrier, it's only got crew, um, carry capacity of five, so you're not exactly going to put five, you know, chumps in there. It's, you know, traditionally they carry... Soviet engineers with flamethrowers and submachine guns and Panzerfausts, and you know what? Mine did too, and they had a mm-hmm. great time. The, yes, they did. They partied on like 1999. They had a fantastic yeah. time, uh, and if you really want to splash the points, you know, you buy them body armor. I'm not pro body armor. I think it's just a bit of a waste of time, purely from the fact that it stops that unit running 12 inches i like i like my infantry to have the speed mm-hmm. um, and the board and the body armor stops that and um you know there'll be <laughs> the pro body armor group out there will hate this one but if if there's units shooting back at your engineers then your engineers haven't done the right job right. <laughs> they should kill they should get mm-hmm. out and kill everything that's near them um you know or or you've left them unsupported to get shot at so you know that's your tactical mistake. Mm-hmm. Do you hear that noise? It's the wails of the pro body armor guys. <laughs> really? Oh, um, I, I would like to just point out, if you want to put the heavy machine gun on the universal carrier and you're wondering what I'm talking about because it's not on the British list, where does it say this? Because I know someone's going to ask me. If you go to Fortress Budapest, there is an entry in that book for Lend-Lease Universal Carriers for the Soviets. It's in there. But as I was mentioning, the M3 Lee, and the reason why I bring that up is because for those who aren't familiar with, as the Soviets called it, the coffin for six brothers, it is a Sherman frame tank that has the main gun, the 75 millimeter gun of a Sherman pointed out the front, which means it has the HE rule. It also has a turret with a pintle mounted machine gun and a light AT gun. But more to the point on top of that turret is another turret and on top and that turret has a medium machine gun. So you can fire three weapon systems in three different directions with that tank. Combine that with some universal carriers and you are throwing out a hell of a lot of paper cuts to bleed someone to death. It is, it is how I did well with that list, but man, it was, it was a lot of fun to play, um, just to have that mobility. And because it's a medium tank, it's got a little bit of a chin to point at your opponent. You don't want to point the sides, though, because it is vulnerable on the sides. But I think oh, the no. M3 super slept on. I think it is such an underrated tank. And the fact that you can take it in this list and no one does it is criminal. And by the way, I bought an M3 Lee two days ago. 
can say everything you've said about the M3 Lee is accurate in terms of its gun and its output ability. Uh, you mentioned the side armor and its general vulnerabilities. Yep. You know, you can pick up a rule book and you'll read that and you'll mm-hmm. understand it. The biggest thing that puts me off taking one is the physical model itself. It's you huge. Can't hide, you cannot hide it properly. Nope. Um, you know, I did a nice introductory game recently and I was trying to talk through how cover how cover worked for, for different elements of an army. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing when it comes to vehicles is it's either cover or not cover. Mm-hmm. Can you see more than 50% of this vehicle? No cover. Can you see 50% or less? Cover. And then mm-hmm. that covers, you know, I'm, you know, people know the rules, but it's the cover that's granted is based upon the cover that protects the vehicle. So if you've got a hardcover building that covers 50% of your vehicle, it's hardcover shot. If it's a softcover forest, it's soft cover it gets. Yep. When you get an M3 Lee on the board, <laughs> there's no cover. <laughs> it's it's like a mobile little townhouse <laughs> well, just cruising yeah. around with guns. It's, it's great, but yeah. you know, you you just can't do it. In the Desert War, it was called the Iron Cathedral because it was so tall. Germans could see it coming a mile away. Yeah. Uh, to play it on the tabletop, look, you know, most tanks, you drive it up to a wall, you know, there's a good chance it'll get covered depending on how big your tank is, mm-hmm. particularly if you're playing at the quote-unquote competitive edge because everyone seems to be playing light tanks. And so you see much smaller tanks, much easier to get cover. You're not going to be doing that with the Lee. In fact, I've tried many times with many walls uh, with my British, and it never worked. The only way to effectively get good cover of that is to drive it into area terrain like a forest, park it on the edge, and just take that yeah. that minus one that they're shooting at you and pray that it works. That's that's it. So the, the points value escapes me at the moment, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I, I don't have it in front of me because I thought of it on the plane, and my... American and British book are actually currently sitting in my office in Australia, but I believe it's, oh, I want to say it's 210 points, but I'm probably wrong. It's in that ballpark, though. What a bunch of nerds we are. I know. M3 Lee, da 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 220 points regular. 220 points, yeah, I was 10 points yep. off. But And you that, can't get it better because it never hung around that long enough. Exactly. <laughs> and the Soviets got bucket loads of them. Uh, because the allies went, yeah, we, we don't want this. Uh, hey, we'll give it to the give it to the Soviets. They need tanks, right? Um, yeah, but, they were they were conned. Yeah, but that said, they once the T thirty four got widely used in the war, um, they were used in the center, and the M three Lees were pushed off to the flanks. They were still being used. Just saying, you can use them. They definitely were used, and often with universal carriers. So I'm very happy to being the history nerd. But let's talk about something else that is a little underrated in the Soviet list, because people love to talk about the machine gun Jeep for the Americans as an armored car. Mm -hmm. And yet the Soviets do it as well. The Soviets and the Japanese, no one seems to do that. And yet the army... Entry exists. The model exists. Warlord makes both of them. I don't know why you wouldn't consider it. They are very, if people love to talk about the efficiencies, they are very efficient. Now, I know that the U.S. used machine guns on their Jeeps aggressively more so than other nations because the U.S. put machine guns on things 
probably more than a lot of people anyway. But look, that entry exists. It may not be the most historical thing in the world, but if you're looking for a low point cost, way to zip around the board and put pins on things, that's not a bad choice. No, I agree. Um, I have got Jeeps with medium machine guns modeled for Germans. My Soviets, I do have it. Uh, and for the American army I've got, and yeah, it's, it's something I model. I mean, it's 40 points regular, isn't it? It is 36. Is it really? Yeah, 46 mm -hmm. points if you want to give it a heavy machine gun at regular. Um, oh, and I know no. not everyone loves a heavy machine gun, but I do like the ability to put pins on armored vehicles and or being able to put good solid hits on um, transports. Not to mention it's great when shooting at veteran infantry. You probably find, though, that with, now when I think about it, because obviously it takes up the armored car slot. It does. Um, what you probably find with Soviet players is if they're wanting to use the armored car slot, they're going to go for, um, oh, what is it? The BA-20. Yeah, I was going to say, the, are you going to say the flamethrower BA-20? Because yeah. that is one of the most point-efficient flamethrower vehicles in the game. Yep, and that's that tends to be what happens. Um, and it's, I guess as well with the Germans, I've modeled it, but you know the Germans have got the BMW bike, you know, that's that's the best armored car mm -hmm. choice they've got. You know, you don't see it so much with uh, the British because they've got really good armored cars that they can pick anyway. You know, and you know, I'm sure the Soviets, as a Soviet player, I look at the British armored cars and wish, damn it, I wish somebody had sprung for a couple of staghounds. That'd be so good. You know, over in Russia. So it's only uh, it really is only the Americans that use the MMG Jeep, I believe. Well. You know, and that's that's why you don't really yeah. see it in the Soviets. Yeah, it's it's an option. Uh, what other things do you see? As it is a full list. Yeah, look, it's it's a pretty busy list, but it goes without saying that the Soviets have got your standard infantry choices. You know, with access to the um, LMGs, anti-tank grenades, there's no point going delving into that. We've spoken about the assault engineers. Other armies have got those same options. The only real difference is that the Soviets can get body armor and they can dish out some um, Panzerfausts if mm -hmm. they're required, which is great. The The tank riders we've discussed, they're just a bunch of you know guys literally hanging off a tank armed with submachine guns. and They're covered by their own special rules. Both myself and Brad, uh, we are big fans of the Soviet Naval Brigade. Yep, and it's worth having a chat, well, a quick chat about them. In that, uh, the standard regular man, regular infantryman, is priced at eleven points mm -hmm. uh, because because they all come with tough fighter, and that's something I've I've not used at tournaments, but I've used it in friendly, um, sort of friendly competitive games for that long range. You've got long-range weapons fire with rifles, mm -hmm. and then you've still got the ability to be a tough fighter in close combat. Don't underestimate it. Definitely don't. I really like those because if you want to play defensively, 
I find they are a great unit because, as you say, you can give the squad a majority rifles and put them behind a wall. And if someone assaults you, they're going to regret it. Now, they're not the mm -hmm. squad that I would always pick if I want to throw a squad in a truck and zip out, jump out, and mow someone down because they'd have rifles and they wouldn't have the shots of, say, you know, a squad with submachine guns in it. That said, you can still give them all the submachine guns you want. And they're only two points per guy uh, because you've already paid the one point for the uh, tough fighter rule. And they very nicely give you a discount because of that. Plus, you really can't go past the fact that they are wearing black outfits in an otherwise fairly drab army of color. Um, and I don't say that to be you know, disparaging. Just having <laughs> painted a lot of models in uh, khaki over the years or you know darker browns it's nice to mix it up and do something different and with my naval brigade i'm painting now um, i discovered that often in a lot of the battles uh, in warmer weather they would actually wear their training pants which were white and al you know how much i enjoy painting white so all of my well they're off-white so all of my naval brigade are wearing off-white pants and so it really does make that army pop on the tabletop while mm -hmm. everyone not wearing snowsuits because that might be too much white. Yeah, you've you've done you've done your stint on snowsuits, mate. Once or twice. Very, very much so. Delving back into the, the main list again, we've talked about the Zest three, efficient gun, flexible gun, really, really good. I see there's a drive and different sort of little sects of the game now to try and include um light and heavy auto cannons more yes just just to counter this this obsession with light armor mm -hmm. um, you know so you look at the anti-aircraft guns that the soviets can get heavy automatic cannon for 60 points regular mm -hmm. uh, with, you know page 39 37 millimeter 61k blah 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 something like that's got worth I have it. I have it. I had one have 3D you? printed for me. And oh, good. what is also cool with this list, because it's a heavy, up until recently, it was classed that it had to be towed onto the board. It would count like a heavy AT gun or a heavy howitzer, at least in the Australian, the way we run events down here. So I tried to run a Bofors in Finns one year for CanCon, and I was told that I had to get a tow for it. Well, the Soviets have, an, have a tow. They have the 15-point toe that you can use to bring it on, which is, again, another cheap order dice. Unlike a lot of anti-tank guns and a lot of howitzers, man, a, a heavy autocannon is not an expensive option, and it feels good because you get to throw a couple of dice to roll to hit. And again, it just I love the idea of putting pins on things, and heavy autocannons are great for that. Yeah, and it should be mentioned that while you can't put machine guns on artillery tractors like you can in the American list, in the Soviet list, you could armor it and make it a 7-up armor for plus 20 points. Look, I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, but it exists, again, if you want to do that. But I think that uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention the autocannons as well. Yeah, the heavy autocannon is 60 points. Unbelievable! So good. It's it's a good it's a good slot, and I think for for a player like myself, I I have 
now tried to steer away from HE and artillery pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, classic, you know, light, medium, heavy howitzers, flak 88s, that sort of thing. Whereas with this, though, I could I could find a place for, and plus it's sixty points, like we just said, it is mm -hmm. super efficient. I with feel the toe, seventy five for two order dice. Look, it's not bad. Like I don't know well, if you'd want to pay for the toe, but if you want well, it, it's there. That's it. As you've just said, you don't you don't need the toe anymore because you get a free mm -hmm. six inch move as per the FAQ, and you know I think players have got to remember as well that the generic horse toe and the mule yeah. toe is available um it is what is that i think the mules eight points the horse is 10 points whatever they are super cheap um if that's what you want to if that's what you want to go down you know it's these these other these other options are are there i know i've mentioned it quite a lot but i do have a lot of experience with the scout squad in particular um, and it's something that I wanted to bring up. In fact, I even considered doing a whole podcast episode about it because I, I love this idea. Um, as you know, I do like a weird skew list that is based on history. And in this particular case, I think this unit is great because large units of these did run through the cityscape and a lot of battlefields in World War II. And tactically, they are very interesting. You can take um, so they're set, they're veteran squads, 70 points. Um, you get an NCO and four dudes. So five guys for 70 points. You can add up to two more for 14 points each. So it's a veteran plus one for their forward deploy rule. You can give any number of them submachine guns at plus three points, and you can give them anti-tank grenades if you want to. But they get to forward deploy like observers and snipers. They also ignore the minus one if you bring them on from reserve, which I would normally say, why would you do that? But it depends on your game plan. You may, you may really want to outflank with a squad of these at one point, particularly if you're running them in mass. Now, I have used forward deploying units poorly many, many times in my years as a gamer. Um, and I think it's an easy trap that I've fallen into, and I know a lot of other people have fallen into. But having played an army of this, it's, it's really easy to sometimes when you have units that forward deploy to put them into a bad position where they're by themselves and all of a sudden um, they're easily dealt with by your opponent while the rest of your army moves up what i love about a scout themed army where you might have four or five squads of these guys is that you have so much of your presence either so far forward or deployed in a position that's advantageous for you that would normally be out of your your zone of deployment, it really does give you the the strength in numbers to set up in a particular place. And if you build your army around it, because I used a Katusha with this army, so I was able to throw out shots at range with mortars, with Katushas, with snipers to support these guys out in the field. And it was almost like I had two armies on the table and I used the infantry in the middle to get objectives to move around and I had the numbers so that the opponent couldn't just focus fire, pin something out or kill it. They, they couldn't do that because the chin of my army was where I wanted it to be. And then they were put on the wrong foot for it, if that makes sense. And it is one point a model to do that. And I think that's great. And to add to that, 
I would add in that particular list, I ran three tank hunter squads, which I would run as regular because you can run them as inexperienced, regular or veteran. Now you are paying through the nose for these because regular ones of these are 14 points model. Again, they get the forward deployment rule. They get the tough tank hunters rule, which I never used because the squads are so small, it never actually mattered. But you could get a Panzerfaust in these squads. So I was running basically four-man squads around with submachine guns and a Panzerfaust uh, in support of the scout squads so that tanks couldn't come near them. And again, forward deployed up with them and just gave me more squads on the table. And you know I love that. Yeah, I know those squads weren't point effective, but when you are factoring that whole synergy together, that I thought that army was really interesting and a lot of fun to play. And I actually may have bought the models to do it again because I sold them. <laughs> um, and I've been really missing it. And I've been getting nostalgic recently, kids. I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm, 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 the Soviets are allowing me to, to go back and play a bunch of my old armies again under one banner, so to speak. And I guess that banner is red and has a hammer and sickle. Al, what do you think? Is this a terrible idea? No, it's not a terrible idea, but I'll use a few terms I might regret later. Um, That's all right. You'll players of the middle order of whatever environment that you're you're in will probably struggle against this a list like that, the forward deploy scouts, just because having so many veterans so close to you so quickly, you know, they'll be in some sort of cover. You're not you, Brad, as a player, are not going to deploy them poorly. And if you've got it backed up by some multi launchers, you know, that's that's tricky. Tricky to handle. Once you get away from the middle order players to the upper order or the, you know, if we're talking at a tournament, once you get into sort of rounds two and three, you know, table two, table, table one, table two, you're going to encounter players that know what to do to, to counter this. Because one of the, well, I don't know the rest of your list, one of the deficiencies of it is going to be your order dice count because mm. you've got, because you've got a bucket of points mm-hmm. invested in these these um, expensive veteran forward deploying squads. When you get to the top, the higher end of an event, you'll you'll meet somebody that knows what to do. The, the first thing is don't panic. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Just don't panic. All all Brad will have done, or all a player that has got a scout army like this has done, as they've brought their army closer to your guns, mm-hmm. and that is brilliant. It is. Because if if it would play out the way I would anticipate, you should have more order dice than him, than Brad, mm-hmm. to start with. And as soon as you just start spraying pins, spraying pins, because there's Brad and other scout players, they've got great units that are forward deployed, but they don't have support. They don't have the support of an officer with a leadership bonus. Panzerfaust, that's lovely. They are you know, pretty pretty scary stuff. If there's no other, there's no other tools there though. No, you know, there's no flamethrowers to, to scare you away at close range. Mm-hmm. Submachine guns, yeah, they're they're pretty tough, but you should have submachine guns as well, um, mm-hmm. in your army. So it's it's really it, it it can be it can be handled well, but it is a good is a good themed army. And if you're on an objective thing. <laughs> Objective uh, an objective based thing is tough work. Sectors would be pretty mm-hmm. tough because mm-hmm. you're, 
you're already there and it's not for a sector's mission with a scout army like this it's not so much trying to dig you out of a sector it's the fact that they're stopping you moving into other sectors because you have to get through them first so that that burns up time of the game and the attrition of it so yeah it's it's good it is a good army but you'd have to play out your skin yeah round, round it's, three. it's also not a perfect army i'm not saying that's going to win you every game it is definitely not but there I are think, no perfect armies. No, exactly. Thank God. I, Thank God. It is it is a skew list in a big way, but I think it's it's a fun army idea. It's very themed, uh, and I think you can do a lot of cool things with it. I also would like to point out, though, that depending on the mission, depending on the opponent, um, when I ran that uh, in some of the games that I played, I sometimes didn't forward deploy it at all. I just mm -hmm. waited till the end and then put the units down. So... For a single yeah. point, right? What you're doing is you're you're getting your opponent to put their army down. Then you put down the bulk of your army, and so you're able to do. And I love smashing one side of my opponent's army, and then coming around, uh, focusing on one part with a majority of my army, and then coming around and smashing the rest of it. It works. It's how I use my Auto Sahariana. It's how I used my uh, British with the Indian carriers and the Lee. It's just having the mobility, or in this case, having the ability to deploy in a way that you are able to hit your opponent where you want and then come around. Anyway, that just food for thought. Just a fun no. thing that this army does, right? Your your point about the deployment thing, not forward deploying them, but just wait until the end to deploy your those core infantry units within your own deployment zone, it's 100% mm -hmm. legit. Yeah. It's a legitimate thing. Or even just deploying them five inches forward, three inches forward, wherever there's a wall, wherever there's yep. a building you can hide behind. Get you know, get in, get do what you need to do, and go. Get them in cover. Well, Al, is there any other unit in there that you think is really underrated? Because I'm sure we could go through entries till the day is... I mean, everyone's talked about dog mines. Everyone's talked about so many of these units before. I like some of the weird little tanks and <laughs> man, I love the, I, the, the one five two. I think the SU 152 is such a fun tank to run, but it's not the most efficient thing. No. Um, oh, look, there was two, two that I'm split between and I'm going to go with the one of them, the M 17 anti-aircraft gun, the multiple gun motor carriage, the, love it. What did the Americans call it? The meat chopper. The meat chopper. Yeah. So it's in your anti-aircraft slot, page 53 of your, your um, army book, 125 points regular, 7 plus armoured car, open top, flak, 4 turret mounted heavy machine guns. Mm -hmm. Just get that firing. You know, you've, you know, there's, we haven't spoken about the Tokarev quad maxim. Ditch it. Soft skin. Mm -hmm. Junk junk it they are yesterday's news anybody that takes them is just living in the past i'm telling you now don't even bother with them soft skin rifle good night this is what you want yes it is i love it yep. and it looks badass too oh yeah it, it does is. yeah <sighs> i know i know that's not something that you we should probably talk about but it is badass looking and you know i love a heavy machine gun and having that 
that deletes transport units or more to the point that deletes veteran squads, which is so good. The great thing with bolt action is that trends come and go as the counters are met to to face off against these lists. You know, I remember years ago before COVID-19 and everything else hit, you know, all you would see would be these twin Soviet platoons with quad maxim trucks and just infantry hordes of Soviets running at you. And you, if people were panicking, like, oh, my God, what do we do? And then trends change. They These do. People, you know, I remember the one of the early times I bumped into one, and I had a, a, a generic German single platoon, and then across the board from me was, um, you know, like two Tokaravs. There was, like, three or four trucks with mini machine guns packed full of, you know, crazy Soviet guys. And it's just like, all right. Calm down. They're soft skins. Mm-hmm. Just shoot them. Shoot them with rifles. Put the pins, and slowly whittle it down and make them, you know, blow up or or fail their order checks in reverse. And then they they've fallen very much out of fashion as they should. And after this podcast, I fully expect the M seventeen anti aircraft meat chopper to come into fashion because they're badass. Should I mention that I own one? You should. That's a good thing. Is it painted yes. yet? Of course it's not no. painted yet. No. no. I've owned it for like five years, but I do have one. Yeah, I, no. I really do need to paint it. It is a glorious model. Uh, there's a lot of little metal machine guns that need to be straightened, though. I think that's yeah. why I haven't. That's the yeah. problem with that. But I, I did buy some metal rod um, as just a little hobby hack, folks. If you do buy that, if it is awesome and it grabs you and the guns are all bent out like mine are, if you snip the barrels and then you put uh, the steel rod in in its place, you can get that thin hobby rod and then mm-hmm. cut the uh, the muzzle brake and stick that on the other end. As long as you're careful about how much you're drilling in and pinning these things, it looks the business. I've done it a couple of times with other things. I just need to do it with the meat chopper. What was the other unit? Because you said you had two. Oh, the other one... I think I've listened too much to some propaganda coming from some of the some of the players around the world that I listen to. There's a there's a particular South African gentleman who mm-hmm. you know, has, spends a lot of time on marketing of Soviet units. Yes, he does. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was bending my ear though about the BA sixty four, the the Bobby, the Bobcat. Right. Love it. And I was trying to. I was trying to disagree in my head with them, but you know, as you're taught, it's like a little wheeled armored car, you know, seven plus sixty-five points regular. You know, it's got different variants that you can put, make it fully armored for an extra five points. But eventually it whittles down to, and this is where you love it, um, you can stick a heavy machine gun in it. So and you it, can um, put a roof on it to make it not open topped. Exactly. So for 90 points, it can be a fully armored seven plus armored car. With a heavy machine gun, with Ricky uh, and Flack, I guess the only reason I get a bit annoyed that it's ninety points is that I could I could take those points and buy my um, heavy auto cannon and an anti tank rifle. Yep. You know, but I, you know what, it looks ugly, but I, I, I do kind of like it. <laughs> I love it, man. I think it looks uh, it looks Cold War. I love the look of that thing. Well. But- that was that was the thing though. When they into in in service up until like the nineteen seventies or something. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, 
I don't want to say anything controversial, but those idiots in Russia have probably still got a few of these running about right now. They probably do. <sighs> yeah, that, that's the other the other vehicle I had comment on, but nice. I guess I guess what we've covered is not looking outside of the box at the Soviets, but we've not bored people by talking about all this super efficient stuff that they can take. It's just that little look outside of the norm. I hope we've we've spurred people's imagination on with the Soviets. Agreed. I I think there's just so much to talk about. And look, there are wonderful podcasts. I've done them. Lots of other people have done them. I know the Juggernauts have done them. Uh, Snafu. God, every podcast under the sun has done uh, a, a discussion of the Soviets that is in-depth and talks about all the efficient units and all the great stuff. And they're not wrong. All of that stuff is great. I hope what we've done, like you said, is to talk about some of the things you know, we've touched some on some of the, the hotness, yeah. but there's a lot of good stuff in there that could be really effectively used on the tabletop and to really help you to build a themed army too, depending on what you're doing. And yeah, there's some great options that are totally slept on. Al, before we go, do you think there are any traps? I know we've mentioned a few as we go through. Um, but are there any traps that you think that people should avoid with the Soviet list? Because as I consider that for other armies, because those armies lean into a particular play style, I find that I often have a lot to say about traps. Because the Soviets are so versatile, I don't know if I'm feeling that this time around. Um, but you, as a, having played more than I, would I think I think you said it earlier? Does it come down to play style? It's all play style, yeah. yeah. And I think before before you pick your Soviet army book up and start writing the list, you've got to understand your own play style. You know your own self. What it is that what it is that you enjoy about about the game, and about how you go about playing playing games, playing missions, and and winning games. Uh, you just mentioned a whole lot of podcasts that have covered the Soviets and they've all put army lists out. Some of their players are exceptionally good with Soviets, but they're good with Soviets in their own style. Right. You know, there's the, the mass gun batteries, the twin platoon with heavy howitzers and just hordes of inexperienced infantry. They're in forward, you know, 24, 26, 28 order dice. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, everything's inexperienced. That, that works for some people, doesn't work for me. Truly, I've tried it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a pick-up-and-play army. I once bumped into it in this, you will just absolutely cry. I bumped into a twin Soviet tank platoon at an event, a twin inexperienced Soviet tank platoon. All his tanks were inexperienced. It was unbelievable. He had, it was a 1,000 points as well, and I'm sure he had at least 20 order dice. And there was eight, eight tanks, like inexperienced tanks. Like, but it was we're talking like the the there was an inexperienced T twenty eight, inexperienced little Vickers with the twin medium machine guns. Um, he had a whole menu of these inexperienced tanks, backed up by two uh, Katushas, and then his infantry squads were just loaded into inexperienced trucks. 
and he padded out with inexperienced dog minds. It, it was a nightmare to look at. I had a, I had a single generic German platoon, but critically, I had a Panzer IV, and it was the original version of Tiger Fear. He failed all his order checks. The poor guy couldn't pass. But again, that's a different sort of Soviet horde army that he could play with that I, I couldn't. So I think players should maybe not listen to all the podcasts, don't read the lists, and experiment with the Soviets to find out what works. Um, you know, you've spoken about very elite veteran scout armies. You know, they'll have a low dice cost, a low dice count, sorry. I look at the Soviet list that I've used. You know, I still like to have two regular eight-man units, two regular eight-man infantry squads with rifles and one Panzerfaust. Just, you know, good genetic guys to hold the middle. I went with a veteran uh, dog team. You know, so it was two guys, two dogs, but they were veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people looked at that and thought it wasn't very good. I have to say it wasn't. <laughs> but that's <laughs> but that was but that was part of the experiment I wanted to do. Because I, you know, spamming them and inexperienced wasn't really for me. I wanted something that had some staying power. And I just don't think I used them well. Um so there's 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 a lot there that people have to understand. And it's also as I said at the very beginning understanding what you want to do with that free and experienced 12-man rifle squad you know exactly yeah are you going to buy that truck for them you know are you just going to have them on foot as the commissar there is he not there etc etc so you know i think the the trap the trap is don't don't buy too much stuff at the start understand what you want or you'll end up with collections like myself and brad do (laughs) it's true but i i think that's I mean, that is really the key here is I think the big trap is to fall into because so many people say that the Soviets are so good. It's just assuming that you're going to win if you run a Soviet list. But you really need to drill into what works, but more to the point, what works for you on the tabletop and what and come up with a game plan that matches that and get those reps in. And then this really gives you the choice and the tools to be able to create the perfect bolt action glove for your hand so that you can do what you need to do on a tabletop. And I think that is the strength of the Soviets. You know what? Not beginner friendly or they're not easy mode. As mm. I'm sure I've, I've I heard a, a recent podcast talk about Americans as being easy mode. Um, I'm going the record and say you're flat wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they're not easy mode, but they're, they're a great menu for a beginner because they can pick and choose what they want. You know, the opposite the opposite version of that would be an army like Finland. Finnish are very narrow in how they achieve victory because of their their army special rules and how they are allowed to work. Whereas the Soviets have got this big, you know, um, smorgasbord of mm-hmm. try all these units. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. They work together, they don't work together. But you can get to the to your to your victory through a few different means so yeah pick up the soviet army book guys it's um cheap and cheerful 14 pounds 99 from all good retailers <laughs> or or whatever currency you spend well al i'm sure we could talk about soviets 
for hours to go, but I think we've hit a good stopping point. Thank you again for coming on, brother. It is always a pleasure to talk shop with you, especially given your experience with the Soviets and helping me to unpack such a rich and diverse army list. We didn't even get into cavalry armies, and that's a thing. So there's so much yep. to talk about. Especially if you're um, from Mongolia. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. thanks again, brother. Really, thank you for coming on and taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk shop. Cool. Stay safe out there, mate. And thank you guys for listening. Um, I know we've been doing a ton of bolt action content. As I said, I have gotten lots and lots of requests to continue to talk about bolt action army lists. And this was another listener idea was discussing uh, the so armies of the Soviet Union, uh, much like we discussed the Americans in the Free French recently. Uh, I will be bridging out into other games. We will be talking more bolt action. There's lots of great content coming on the Cast Dice podcast and on the Warlord Games official podcast. Look for more episodes for that too on this network. If you have any ideas for shows going into the future, if you have any feedback about this, if we've made a mistake, if we're dead wrong, please let me know. Go to Facebook, go to Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, message the page. My name is Brad. You're guaranteed a response. And I think that takes us to what my buddy Casey always says at this time, which is when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. And more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Yeah.